0: Bite sized birthday biography podcast. I'm your host, Hannah Mira. This is a daily podcast which shines a spotlight on a person born on this day at some point in history, somewhere in the world, who made a positive, lasting impact. Today, September 24th, we're going to celebrate the birth and life of Esther Eng, LGBTQ icon and the first female Chinese film director in the U.S. She was born on this day in 1914. Esther Eng is a ghost. Her life came and went and all traces of it were lost to time. Even the images captured in her films, theoretically in perpetuity, were all lost, leaving no trace of her work. Her voice was lost to time. Audio recordings of her all vanished. But, like all classic cinematic heroes, she would not go gentle into that good night. It was luck, or maybe chance, that day in 2006 that caused someone to glance into a dumpster in a San Francisco alley, to not walk away from the 20 years of photo albums someone had discarded. Someone stopped to gather the photos, yellow and worn with age and neglect, but still accurate representations of a young Chinese woman with short, slicked-back hair in a beige power suit tailored expertly at the waist and jutting sharply out at the shoulders. Her eyes are hard and focused, but also confident and eager. Her lips are glossed with dark polish, and her bone structure is inhumanly beautiful. She has this incredibly sexy, androgynous quality, like a Marlita Dietrich or Kay Francis. Esther's life, yes, was remarkable, like her. Yet she was, as Variety said, an Asian woman filmmaker who has utterly eluded the radar of the most diligent feminist historians and cinephiles. So what is the one consolation of a visual artist if not that they are leaving a piece of themselves for posterity? There's no guarantee it'll be loved or viewed as a testament to their genius, but it will serve as a celluloid calling card, allowing their voice and vision to outlive them. But what happens when film is lost? Whether due to human error or non-preservation or just lack of money, film reels break down, tear, or are discarded. If a movie disappears in history, does it make a sound? It's truly a shame that all of Esther's movies are gone. According to every source except for Wikipedia, Wikipedia says that there are two surviving films, but there is no trace of them to be found online. So according to every other source, all of her movies are gone. If Esther was alive today, she would straddle the unicorn Venn diagram of Asian feminist LGBTQ filmmaking. I can't even think of a contemporary that's doing what she did. I cannot think of the openly gay Asian powerhouse feminist anti-war director That is smashing ceilings like Esther did in the 1930s and 40s. She may exist and I'm just not aware of her. And if you know her name, please tell me. Esther made the first Hollywood all Chinese movie produced and directed by only Chinese people starring only Chinese people, not white people with their eyes taped back and black hair paint. She was and is an icon in multiple fields. So the question today, I suppose, is less why is she worth remembering as why was she forgotten? Esther was the fourth of ten children born in San Francisco. Her grandparents had immigrated from Taishan, a 1,200-square-mile town of almost a million people on the southernmost coast of China, about 90 miles south of Hong Kong. Growing up in San Francisco, Esther became enamored of Cantonese opera, as there was an abundance of Chinese opera houses and theaters there. She even worked at the Mandarin Theater as a teen. As cross-dressing was de rigueur in Cantonese opera, it is possible that that is when Esther began to adopt the more traditionally masculine trappings of suits and really short, slicked back hair. It's also possible that this was the environment that helped her to feel comfortable with being openly gay as homosexuality was kind of accepted as sort of part and parcel of what came along with being involved with Cantonese opera. If this is in fact the case, then it may have helped her to never feel hesitant to live openly and authentically as she never met any resistance or discrimination from her peers during those formative years when she was forming this gender identity. In her life, she would have open romantic relationships with women. It's interesting the disparity in how American news and Chinese news would portray her relationships throughout her life, though. American media would refer to the women that she dated as her bosom friends or her good sisters, while Chinese media flat out said she was, quote, living proof of the possibility of same-sex love. In 1933, when Esther was 19, her father started a film production company with a few business partners and made Esther a producer. Her father worked on developing the company in San Francisco, while Esther tried to extend it out to Los Angeles. She got her first screen credit as a co-producer in the 1936 film Heartache. This is now a lost film, as are all of her other movies. It was shot in only eight days, it took up two color reels of film, and it premiered in Hong Kong under the name Iron Blood Fragrant Soul. In 1937, the tensions between Japan and China were obviously beginning to ramp up as the countries had chosen opposing sides in the war. So Esther taps into the general public feeling of Hong Kong, where she's staying, and she makes a patriotic film about a female pilot who has to fight for her country. It was called National Heroine, and it was a huge hit in China. So she stuck around to make two more films, uh, one called 10,000 Lovers and one called The Storm of Envy. These are now lost films, so I can't give you a synopsis, but based on the titles, it sounds like they were definitely more romantic films. She also co-directed the melodramatically titled A Night of Romance, A Life of Regret. In 1939, she directed an all-female cast in It's a Woman's World, which showcased 36 women in a variety of professions. It's another lost film, but what caught my eye was that it was an all-female movie made in 1939. And that same year in America, MGM would also produce an all-female movie called The Women. So that same year, Esther returns to San Francisco and she starts working in the distribution of Cantonese movies to South and Central America. In 1941, she made one of the two movies that you can still find some information on, even though the film itself is lost. It's called Golden Gate Girl. It's the first full-length Chinese feature film made in San Francisco. It describes um, this sort of immigrant drama about a woman who defies her family and falls in love and gets pregnant. Bit of trivia, there's a baby girl in the movie for a few scenes. That baby is actually Bruce Lee in his first ever movie role. This movie was used as propaganda during rice bowl drives in San Francisco. The rice bowl movement was this attempt by Chinese immigrants overseas to raise money to help China fight off the Japanese. Esther bounced back and forth between San Francisco and Hong Kong for the rest of the 1940s, making a few more films that usually had to do with some kind of clandestine affair. Mad Fire, Mad Love was one such movie shot in Hawaii in 1949 which followed the romance of a mixed race woman and a Chinese sailor. Very risque stuff for the 40s, especially since laws banning interracial marriages were in place up until the 1960s. Some states even kept them on the books until the early 2000s. You'd be hard pressed to find any major Hollywood feature film at that time, which included an interracial couple, if anyone in the couple was black or Asian. There's a weird sort of loophole for Latin men in the 30s through the 50s when North America was really fetishizing men from Central and South America. So this requires a mini sidebar. In 1933, FDR started something called the Good Neighbor Policy, which was this foreign administration policy from the US towards Latin America. The idea was that the US would not interfere with South America's business and politics, but would try to be helpful and cooperative and considerate like a good neighbor. These countries were pretty skeptical about this, especially since the policy had kind of been put into place when Woodrow Wilson was in office. And while it was in place, he had actually sent troops to occupy Mexico, Haiti, the DR, Cuba, and parts of South America eight times in four years. The U.S.'s butting in was so obnoxious that when the U.S. military occupied Nicaragua, it actually installed a Nicaraguan president that the U.S. had picked, not one that the Nicaraguan people had picked. And this was their way of making sure that the president would sign all of the treaties that were favorable to the U.S. So it's easy to understand why there wasn't a whole ton of love and trust between North America and South-slash-Central America. But Roosevelt thought that this policy was a good idea, so he starts pulling all the troops out of these countries, saying, Sorry guys, we trust you to run your own country, I swear. The Marines leave Nicaragua in 1933 and Haiti in 1934. FDR knew he had a lot of work to do in order to get some good feeling going on between the countries. And he knew that the, one of the best ways to do that was through movies. So in order to erase these negative stereotypes in films of Latin American people who were usually portrayed as being lazy or untrustworthy, they needed some new faces to represent Latin America. One of the first stars and one of the brightest would be uh, singer, actress, dancer, Carmen Miranda. FDR also tapped Disney to make pro-Latin American propaganda films for kids, resulting in Saludos Amigos and The Three Caballeros. In Hollywood, there was this Latin American fetishizing craze. More and more movies started to take place in South America, even though it really didn't add anything to the plot point. There's Flying Down to Rio in 1933, which is a Dolores Del Rio, Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers movie um suave beautiful Casanova type Latin American men were also in big demand in American movies the actress swimmer Esther Williams teamed up with a fair share of hers including Ricardo Montalban and Fernando Lamas so there's this whole push for Latin American men to become leading men and heartthrobs only the handsome ones though Latin American musical contract players like Carmen Miranda and Xavier Cugat would usually get stuck in entertainer roles in major Hollywood films Yet, black and Asian actors were rarely seen in anything other than a menial role. In Neptune's Daughter, Esther Williams is romanced by a sexy Mexican heartthrob Ricardo Montalban, and the one Asian in the entire film is a woman named Lotus, whose only job is to hand Esther her robe when she gets out of the water. So these Latin American actors are getting more screen time, even though it is kind of a creepy fetishizing kind Asian and black actors are still being relegated to servants and subservience in major Hollywood movies. All right, end of sidebar. Just wanted to explain why there was all this fetishizing of Latin American people in film at that time. But back to Esther. So in 1950, Esther quits the movie industry and she decides to go into the restaurant business. She teamed up with another Chinese actor who went by the name Bobo, and they ended up opening five restaurants in Manhattan, making a very good living. Esther co-directed one more movie in 1961 called Murder in New York Chinatown. This made her the first woman to direct an internationally collaborative film, as half the film was shot in Hong Kong by Bobo and she shot the other half in New York. Supposedly, this film and Golden Gate Girl are her only two non-lost films, Again, this is according to Wikipedia, but every other source I checked said that these two films are indeed lost, and I couldn't find any sign of them online. If anyone knows a way to watch either one of these, please send me a message on our Instagram at humans underscore in underscore history. So, why did all of these movies disappear? Money. Esther always worked for independent film companies, so without the resources to manufacture a major motion picture and to finance professional archiving, the reels were either misplaced, damaged, they fell apart, or they were thrown away. Hundreds, maybe even thousands, of early movies from Hollywood's infancy are lost forever because of lack of adequate preservation means and methods. Esther Eng died from cancer at age 55 on January 25, 1970, at Lenox Hill Hospital in New York City. I want to leave you with a quote when asked why a woman would go into a profession like filmmaking with no previous knowledge. She said, I don't know why. I just went ahead, and I wasn't afraid of anything. In 2013, a documentary on her life called Golden Gate, Silver Light, by Louisa Wei, premiered at the Hong Kong International Film Festival. It was inspired by a collection of her photo albums that were found in 2006 in that alley in San Francisco, but there were no film segments to show or any audio of her voice. My sources today were Wikipedia, the San Francisco Bay Times, the Women Film Pioneers Project, South China Morning Post, and Variety. Thank you so much for joining me for a birthday celebration of Esther Eng. Please join me tomorrow, September 25th, when we celebrate the birth and life of William LeBaron Jenny, creator of the world's first skyscraper. See you then.